Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today David Desteno. He is professor of psychology at Northeastern University, author of Emotional Success, one book, and also The Truth About Trust. There's a new book out entitled How God Works, The Science Behind the Benefits of Religion. That's our topic today. Welcome, Professor Desteno. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Uh, okay, let's yeah, we'll jump right in. You begin with a certain prejudice you know among psychologists regarding religious belief. How does the profession in general interpret faith in God? I think psychology in general, and, and most science in general, tends to look at, at religion with a bit of a skeptical eye. Some people just tend to ignore it and see it as kind of superstition. Uh, other people tend to see it as, as problematic. In fact, you know, the New Atheist Movement will even call it a, a plague on the human mind. But what led me to write this book is not that I have any type of, of agenda. I'm not an apologist for religion. Um, I know that religion can, can lead to some problematic outcomes, uh, especially in, in its institutional form. But if you look at the data, um, what it tells us is that people who engage in spiritual practices, who, who go to worship services regularly, tend to live longer, healthier, and happier lives. Now, there's an important distinction there that's easy to miss. Saying you believe in God, uh, going to church at Christmas and, and Easter, or if you're Jewish on Yom Kippur, doesn't predict much. Uh, in fact, uh, your, your outcomes are no different than people who, who aren't religious at all. Um, but if you regularly engage in worship and in these practices, it's kind of a dose-response relationship. And as a scientist, what that tells me is there are there are power in the tools of religion. It's not so much the believing, although belief has an important part. It's in the doing. And there, I think, we have to explore the spiritual practices to see why they're helping people flourish. You you have a a, a nice sort of open, open-minded open approach uh, here when you come to religious belief, you say, when it comes to managing the human experience, it would be strange if thousands of years of religious thought didn't have much to offer. Now, it's interesting you say managing the human experience. So you're not really weighing in on true or false, does God exist, does God not exist. We're talking about how to handle things that happen in, in an ordinary life, that religious thought can can give you something. Is this... Uh, sort of open-minded approach, deliberate on your part. I mean, you, you, you want to come at it in that way. It is, it is very deliberate um, for a few reasons. One, you know, I think any scientist worth their salt will have to say, 
we don't know if God exists. You can say, I, I certainly see no empirical evidence that, that God exists. But the question of whether God exists is one of faith. There is no scientific test. Even some of the most strident atheist folks like Richard Dawkins will say, I can't be absolutely sure that God doesn't exist. And so, you know, who am I to, to, to say what I think? I think um, we're all, we would all benefit from a little bit of intellectual or epistemic humility here. Scientists and religious thinkers want to make the world better for people. And so in this book, when I look at spiritual practices like, like prayer or, or meditation or mourning rituals or coming of age rites, um, you know, I say, I don't know if they were divinely inspired or if they resulted from people over the millennia figuring things out that seemed to work. But that doesn't matter now to studying how to use them. And so let's not get in debates about things that rely on faith. Even atheism relies on faith. It's a, it's a faith that in this corner of the universe, probability favored us, um, but it can't be proven beyond a doubt. And so uh, I think let's, let's focus on what's helpful. And I think, you know, we're unlikely to learn much about the nature of the universe from, from religious uh, theology, although, you know, we're surprised regularly with things that come out of quantum physics. But it would be strange, as you said, that thousands of years of thought that went into trying to help people meet the challenges of life, find meaning, find joy, deal with sorrow, adapt to change, didn't have something to offer. And so yeah. my argument is, let's, let's look at that. Uh, you, this is a related point, I think, you make a methodological decision to suspend all isms. Uh, including atheism, as you said, from from your your framework, your your outlook, uh, with one exception, agnosticism. Uh, what is the advantage of of that suspension and and of of as agnosticism as the right scientific position? I think if we put our isms aside, uh, it helps us have conversations. I mean, you can see what happens now in modern political discourse when you have political isms, conservatism, liberalism. People start to form teams, and my team is right, and you know, I'm not going to even accept any evidence that, that you offer any of your thoughts. Um, it's not that I think people aren't entitled to their isms. Everybody's entitled to their ism, Catholicism, Judaism, atheism. Um, but because those questions rely on faith, arguing about them isn't something that I think science really needs or should be doing. Agnosticism in the sense that there, there may be something I don't know is, is a little bit of humility. Now, I don't mean lazy agnosticism since, well, I don't know, I don't care. I mean, it's not that the question of whether God exists is unimportant. It's just that right now, there's no agreed upon methodology to answer it. And so I'd rather focus on the things that we can look at, which is how practices like, you know, prayer, meditation, et cetera, help people live better lives. You mentioned a moment ago uh, an important distinction, and that is between believing, uh, having faith, and actually practicing faith in a, in a systematic way. Uh, the one reason you make that distinction is... You, you, you put it this way, science has come to recognize the power of rituals. So it's not just faith, but faith ritualized. What are some of the discoveries that science, broadly speaking, that science has come up with relative to the power of rituals? Sure. Um, you know, if you, if you think of rituals, it's hard to give a good definition of them because, you know, what's the difference 
if you light your candles when the power's out or if you light your candles for, for Shabbat and the Sabbath. It's really the, the, um, the specialness that we attach to them and also the way that the elements contained in these rituals um, affect our minds and bodies. So let me, let me give you a good example to make it concrete, as you suggested. One of my most favorite examples comes from morning rituals. Um, you know, no, no matter who you are at some point in life, unfortunately, you're going to lose someone who, who you love, and that can be a very difficult experience. What's one thing that almost all morning rituals in every faith do? They eulogize the person. They, you spend time talking about what was good about this person. And it seems normal because we all do it. But if you think about it, it's psychologically kind of strange, right? If, if I just lost a job that I really loved or if my wife, who I dearly loved, decided to divorce me and leave me, I wouldn't want to spend time thinking, oh, that job was so great or, oh, my wife was so great because that would make the pain worse. Yet we do this when somebody dies and psychological research over the past decade or so has shown that people who can consolidate positive memories of a person who has passed uh, move through mourning with less anxiety, less depression, and less grief. But other elements come into play in these rituals. One of my favorite is, is the example of, of sitting Shiva, the Jewish mourning ritual. When somebody dies in Shiva, it, it's called a, a mitzvot, which is a sacred obligation that you must go visit the family, bring food, help them out in, in some other way. This is an example of what's called instrumental support. It's not how many friends you have on Facebook. It's, it's who shows up when you need them. And by making it a sacred obligation, people do. Instrumental support is one of the primary predictors of moving through uh, grief in a resilient way. People come together during Shiva in groups of 10 or more. It's called a minion and say, prayer, and say prayers and chant together. There's psychological research that when we do things in synchrony, when we sing or chant in synchrony or sway in synchrony, it makes us feel closer and even more compassion for the other individuals, something important for grieving. Mirrors are covered in a house during Shiva. Uh, it might seem strange, but it serves a psychological purpose. Research now shows that when you look in a mirror, whatever emotion you're feeling becomes intensified. So if you're feeling happy, suddenly you feel happier. If you're feeling sad, suddenly you feel sadder. And at a time of grief, covering mirrors is one way to kind of reduce the intensity of grief that might happen otherwise. One last thing during Shiva, people will sit on the floor uh, or sit on very low stools, which after a while causes discomfort in your lower back or your knees. And then you get up to welcome people and it goes away. There's really new neuroscience research out during just the past few years that shows mild onsets and offsets of discomfort, as would come from that, actually reduces rumination and grief. And so what you're seeing is this packaging of ritual acts that aren't just random, but that, but that actually affect our minds and bodies in ways that help us. And if you're a person of faith, you can say, well, you know, God loves his, her, its creations. And so uh, we have these rituals to help us. And if you're a person who's a non-believer, you can say, well, people kind of figure this interesting package out. I can't answer that. But if scientists paid attention to these morning rituals and studied them earlier, we would have found out these things long before now. What is religio prospecting? Religio prospecting, uh, it's kind of a mouthful. It's not the best term. <laughs> the reason I created it and use it is it it comes from an adaptation of what's called bioprospecting, which in pharmaceutical science in the 20th century was a way that many of the pharmaceutical companies found new medicines. You know, they had wonderful technology to make new medicines, but they didn't know 
where to look or what to start with. And so they would send researchers into uh, traditional cultures and then the Amazon or other places. And they would look at, you know, herbal remedies that that were supposed to cure X, Y, and Z. And sure, many of them didn't work, but some did. And some of the compounds they found led to, you know, amazing cures for different types of cancer or other ailments that we that we have now. Um, and so I'm arguing the same for for kind of religio prospecting when it comes to human well-being. For centuries, for millennia, people went to priests and rabbis and imams to try and help them when they had issues of concerns about meaning, joy, sorrow, death. Um, let's look at the practices that that these folks have used. We can study them empirically in a respectful way. Let's see if they work. And if they do, what can we take from them? We've kind of done this with meditation and mindfulness. We know there are some benefits there, but it can't be a fluke. It can't be the only one. And so this book is part of my charge to say, here's the things that I'm seeing across the lifespan that I think are worthy of investigation. Let's do it. Uh, much of the book then sort of follows an individual life uh, and how different rituals facilitate the flourishing progress of that life. But first, there was one interesting phenomenon you bring up entitled choice, anal- uh, choice paralysis. Choice paralysis. What is choice paralysis and how, how does that apply to the argument here? Yeah, that's not my term, it's, but, uh, but it is one that I, that I use. It, you'll see it a lot in the, in the psychological literature. Choice paralysis basically is a refutation of the idea that more options are always better. You know, we always think more options are better. And some options are good. You know, it's better to have, if you're looking for, you know, the, a, a kind of jelly or condiment you want in a store, uh, it's, you know, one option is kind of limiting. Three or four or five is good. But when there are 27 or 30, it begins to become overload. And, you know, that, that's a minor example. The reason I'm talking about jellies is because there actually is research done on this. Um, people feel more stressed than whatever product they end up with. They actually feel less happy about it in the end because they're always like, well, wait, there were 26 other choices. Maybe one of them would have been better. And so in, in belief, what we see is people who, who have a faith in some divine power, uh, not that they have to give up all choice, not that they can choose randomly. You know, you have to make a wise choice. But once you make your choice, people who trust in a divine power tend to believe that, okay, I've now done it. The rest is up is up to God. Somebody's looking out for me. Um, what you see both in terms of their experience, they feel less stressed and less anxiety. At a neurological level, we actually see less signatures of anxiety in the brain. In fact, the, uh, the areas of the brain that become quieter with, with more increased religious belief are the same ones that Xanax targets, <laughs> if you take Xanax. Um, and so it actually reduces the stress that we're feeling and always trying to maximize whatever choice we're trying to make. You know, I'm of an age, uh, uh, David, where uh, when, I was, when I was 13 years old, there were two choices. You get Keds or you get Converse All-Star. That was it. Uh, a few years later, you know, Adidas came in and then, and then you had Puma and, and all the others. But that was, that was, it was very simple. High tops or low tops. Uh, my, my son, I took my son, you know, I, I, he's 13 years old. I take him to get, to get shoes. We go to the Nike store. There are 50 possible shoes, just Nikes that he could get. And I, I see him go down the aisle and looking at all these things. And I would swear that the, the stimulation is too much. It actually, it actually troubles him at a at a certain point. Am I wrong about that? 
No, the research backs up exactly exactly what you're saying. But the problem is it doesn't only trouble him while he's trying to decide, but afterward he's probably thinking, oh, did I get the right one? What about this? And so that yeah. anxiety lingers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you begin in, in, in the life journey with birth and infancy. What are the some of the religious rituals surrounding it that you mentioned, and what are their effects? Yeah, so one common one, of course, is, is, is a naming ceremony, right? In all religions, there's, you know, it's, whether it's baptism or, or other ceremonies in other, in other religions. Um, and just simply the act of naming itself actually helps us, helps the mind see something as, as more worthy of care. There's even data showing that uh, when people uh, name, give vegetables names and talk to the vegetables after a few moments and then they have to prick them uh, with forks and knives, they actually have a little slightly more signals of distress in their brain than if they didn't name them, which is a strange artifact, but it's basically giving name is power. But one of the things that I look at also has to do with uh, parent parental bonds with children. Um, if you look at the ethnographic literature, one of the places that it is most intense in terms of time spent between uh, mothers and children in terms of skin to skin contact, emotional closeness, et cetera, is among the Japanese. And the uh, the primary uh, religion of Japan is Shintoism. And what you see in Shintoism is many, many, many ceremonies front loaded around the early years of life that celebrate the birth of a child. Uh, it starts before they're born. People, family will come and wrap a, a sash around the pregnant mom's belly to protect the child. There's a ceremony at birth. There's a ceremony at naming. There's a ceremony at the child's first bite of food, the first visit to the shrine. What all these do is they're very public acts of how much you care and cherish this child. And the psychologist Alison Gopnik, who's one of the leading researchers on them, child development and parental bonds with them, has made it a point to say, sometimes, you know, we, we care for our children because we love them, but sometimes we love them because we care for them. The simple act of showing and engaging care, and especially making it memorable here as you do with these rituals, is a reminder of, of how much you care for this child. And, you know, you'll, you'll see this adapted now in pediatricians. They'll say, if you're having problems bonding to your baby, create a ritual every night where you spend time, where you massage a baby, where you read to your child, basically setting aside special time, showing your devotion. That will feed back into your brain and remind you, even on those days when you're just feeling overwhelmed, how important, how important this child is. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You turn to the formative years and discuss how a child learns right from wrong. What does religion do to help with this process? So you know, everybody, I think, recognizes the power that, you know, as, as, you're, as you're learning, you know, most children start school in around five, six, seven, et cetera. But many also begin their religious education around that time in whatever faith they have. And of course, you're learning that, you know, God expects you to be honest and fair and generous and kind. And so you want to do that. But as a behavioral scientist, I will tell you a goal to do something 
uh, doesn't work as well if you don't have the tools to do it. Take take New Year's resolutions. By the second week of January, 25% of those, this is the way I want to be a better person, have already failed. So what religion does is it doesn't only tell you how you should act morally, but it gives you the tools. There's lots of them, but let me just give you one example now, which is the emotion of gratitude. Um, in my lab, we've been studying the power of this emotion for a long time, and we, we bring people in and we, uh, through all kinds of shenanigans, we, we make them feel grateful to somebody else for problems we create for them. Or we simply have them sit down and count their blessings, uh, where they're grateful to God or their family or their friends. And the outcomes are the same. When we give them the opportunity to cheat anonymously to make more money, they cheat, they cheat at half the rate if somebody's feeling grateful than if they don't, because it's not really anonymous, we can tell. They become more helpful to other people. They become more generous, not just to those they feel grateful for, but to, but to everybody. They become more loyal. And so what you're seeing is by by regularly experiencing this emotion, it makes you a more virtuous person. Now, in religion, if you're, if you're a Christian, every time you pray, if you say grace every, every week, I'm sorry, every night uh, before dinner, you're evoking that emotion. If you're Jewish, when you wake up in the morning, you say the Moda'ani prayer, which is a, a prayer of gratitude to God for letting you open your eyes and have your soul return to you for another day. Yes, you're thinking about God when you do this, but you're also cultivating an emotional state that will influence you. And we've shown that people who feel more gratitude on a daily basis have more self-control and ability to resist temptation and therefore are more moral. Would you say that the act of prayer in which you give the words for gratitude, that if you don't feel that gratitude after a while, the the feeling will start to follow the words you will start feeling a little more gratitude just by going through the process is there empirical evidence for that kind of thing yes not with prayer but with other things in fact my friend who is a rabbi uh says that 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 in uh, in judaism there's this notion of sometimes you understand something and then you do it but sometimes you have to do it first to understand or feel it and so there's empirical work just overall that, you know, if you make people put their mouth into the form of a smile, after a while, they'll slightly feel happier. If you have them talk about, just recite words that are related to feeling grateful or happiness, they will begin to feel it. Um, you know, not as much as if you do it intentionally. And again, this is why um, I'm saying the people who are more devoted to these daily practices usually have more intention and therefore get better outcomes. But the beauty of the ritual of this is every day it makes you do it. And every day it makes you think about probably something new that you're grateful for. Because, you know, if I said to you, Mark, what are you grateful for? You'd probably say, oh, my family, my friends, my health. But if you say the same thing day in, day out, it will begin to lose its power. But if every day you're reflecting on things that you're grateful for that recently happened at Grace or that when you're saying these Jewish blessings, um, it keeps it fresh. And I think ritualizing it is, is what allows you to feel that feeling regularly. Now, th this, this steps out of, of you as an empirical scientist. Uh, you wouldn't, uh, maybe I should put it this way. Uh, the idea that beliefs and feelings sort of follow words in, in a way, follow rituals, uh, you wouldn't try to weigh in on the question of whether that's because the words really do have some objective truth to them, or if the words have a kind of behavioral effect 
on, you know, the, the, it's the creation of a habit that sort of gets deeper into your head. That it's just a psychological thing. You don't want to, you, you, you hold off on that question, correct? In the book, at least. So if what, if, if, if what you mean by, by objective validity or something is, is, is like that they're infused with a divine power, then, then I, I say I remain agnostic because it's something that I can't measure. Um, I think that there is a truth in them objectively as well. You know, people will often say to me, Dave, if I want to succeed in life, should I be a good person or should I, or should I be a jerk? And I say, well, what's your time frame?" Right. Because if you if you want to succeed very rapidly, you can be selfish. You can you can, you know, take credit for things that aren't yours. You can exploit other people and you will rise rapidly, but you will fall rapidly beyond that unless you're someone who has, you know, the might of of an army or office or power behind you to instill fear in other people. Science shows that it is people over time who are cooperative, who are generous, who, who are willing to sacrifice for others that over time the accumulations they get through that cooperation outweigh the immediate gains they get from being, from being selfish jerks. And so in that sense, I think that many of the words in prayers have an objective truth in terms of we can map this out and show you that an evolutionary biologist would say the same again, right? This is why I think it's important for scientists to discover this. You know, there's still many folks in, in economics who believe that everybody's out for themselves and that's the way to be. But if you look at the actual data, you're not going to end up with the most money that way if that's all you care about. But in terms of, of, of divine power, that's something that I, I, I just can't weigh in on either way. Yeah. You talk about rites of passage. This was a question that, that you raised and it stood out to me. Many rites of passage, when we, when we look at them, uh, involve an element of pain. What, what, does, what does having to undergo pain, and many of it's tied to some religious religious origins or religious a religious meaning what do these painful rites add to the process of the transition rites of passage into manhood womanhood why 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 pain so when you are making that transition from from adolescence to to adulthood one of the important things that it's, that you have to demonstrate to society around you because remember that type of transition is you can say I'm an adult, right? We all we all have kids who at some point say I'm grown up now. Follow <laughs> me, Dad. You're like, no, not yet. Um, you have to not only believe it yourself, but the community around you has to accept it. And in 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 much of the history of of humanity, the way that you actually demonstrated this was by showing that you had fortitude, right? But showing that when the going got rough, you you could you could persevere. You had you had self control. And so in many rituals. There is this element of, of pain, whether you're in the Amazon and, and boys are getting stung by bullet ants and they can't show. They're called bullet ants because the pain feels like you got shot uh, and they aren't going to show the pain or the Apache sunrise ceremony where, where young girls will dance for hours and hours and hours and not stop. You're showing that you have the strength and fortitude to do something. And it's usually something dramatic because it proves it to yourself that you are able to do it and it proves it to the community around you because if the community around you doesn't accept that you are an adult, you're going to go back to your childlike ways because they're going to treat you as such. And so I think that's why pain matters. We see it less in modern society because now the ability to kind of be an adult doesn't rely quite as much on physical fortitude as it did. And it's also nowadays, when is the age of adulthood? You know, you can vote at one age, you can drink at another age, you can, 
sign a legal document at a third age. And, and so it's, it's kind of difficult for us to actually find when is that right time. You led an experiment testing whether meditation produced more compassion in people. What were the results and, and were you surprised by them? Yeah, it did. In fact, yeah, we, we, this was, a, again, our first stab at actually doing religio-prospecting. If you look at the, the rationale behind meditation, you know what the lamas will tell you is that, um, yes, it'll, it'll reduce your stress, and the modern research shows it'll increase your memory and your creativity, but that's not its goal. Its goal was to reduce the suffering, both of you and of all sentient beings. And so we put this to the test. We brought people to our lab and had them take meditation training for eight weeks from a Buddhist lama. And at the end of that, we brought them back to the lab and we told them we were going to measure their memory. So they came into the waiting room for the lab and that's where the experiment really happened. Uh, there were two seats filled by actors that we had hired and then they would take the third seat. And then about two minutes later, another actor we hired came down. She was, she was on crutches, wearing a boot on her foot like you know you wear when your foot is broken. It wasn't really broken. And she'd come in wincing in pain. And the other two actors sitting in the chairs were told to ignore her and thumb their phones. And the question was, what would the person do? I mean, this is a common kind of thing. You know, if you're in D.C. on the metro, do you give your seat to the pregnant mom with the, with the toddlers in tow or the person on crutches? What we found is that it, those who meditated were three times more likely to get up, go to that person, ask them if they needed help and give them their seat, which is an obvious uh, act of of, of, of compassion. We've then replicated that finding, and we've also shown that in another instance where, where people insult people who had meditated, again, we're using actors here to insult you, um, those who meditate uh, reduce, have, have less of a motive for, for revenge or less likely to lash out at these people. And so what we're able to show is that the idea that meditation actually increases compassion and reduces aggression actually is empirically true. And, and were you surprised? At those results, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, so th this was led by a student of mine, and I'm like, well, that'll be a cool idea, but I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> and I was wrong, and it did, and we, and we've done it a few times to make sure it wasn't a fluke. And that, and our work on gratitude, and it, it, that's what led me here, right? It began to show me that the things that we're doing that make people nicer, kinder, more honest, are being used in spiritual traditions everywhere. And, uh, you know, for scientists, you don't like to be scooped, but when you think you have found something new and not only have you been scooped, have you been scooped by thousands of years, it's a little humbling. And so, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, last question, Professor DiStefano. Uh, Steven Pinker, you quote him saying that belief in an afterlife actually degrades this life. Do you agree? No, I, I, I don't agree at all. Um, and again, no one knows, including Steve, when you die, what happens. Now, if it were the case that belief in an afterlife actually caused people to have much more, you know, uh, uh, harms on earth, um, much more unhealthy lives or unhappy lives, then I'd say, well, then we have to think about this. But as I said, the data actually show that people who are engaged in spiritual practices live longer, healthier, happier lives. They, they die less from deaths of despair. They use drugs less. They have lower blood pressure, better, better cardiovascular health. Steve was saying this in relation to uh, evangelicals taking the coronavirus. And I think it's, 
if you know if people are choosing not to take the coronavirus, I think it has more to do with their own ideology or or the news that they're reading than their religious belief. And so, on the face of it, from everything we can tell, being spiritual, believing in an afterlife, uh, will not do anything except make life better for you. The book is How God Works: The Science Behind the Benefits of Religion. Professor Justeno, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.